Well, it's good to be uh, together with you worshiping. Thank you, band, for playing. That was uh, very encouraging. I enjoyed that uh, so much. Don't you enjoy singing Christmas songs? Now, my boys get on me because we have satellite radio in, in one of the vehicles, and they start playing Christmas music on November the 1st. And so I'm all over that because I think there's way too much Christmas music for the limited season in which we play it. And so I just listen to it constantly. Uh, one of my boys gets in there, he's like, Dad, I cannot listen to this. I've made a commitment not to do it till after Thanksgiving. How many think you're not supposed to listen to Christmas music after Thanksgiving? I know some of you do. Put your hand up. You said it on Facebook like 20 times. All right. So anyway, but I'm the opposite of that. There's way too much Christmas music for the time. All right, let's, uh, let's turn in God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a fantastic passage. I know that we didn't make it far last time, and I'll just warn you up front, we're not going to make it far this time either. But the opening, really the opening two verses are so imperative that we understand the dichotomy that they exist really between the two. Um, let's just read those, if you would. It'll just give us, we're going to read them again here in a minute as we break them down. But look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1. It says, And now I make known to you, uh, brethren, uh, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, which also you stand, verse 2, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the words which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It really sums up the passages we're going to look at today. They are, I think, of imperative importance. And really, this next topic we're going to look at, all the way through 1 Corinthians 15, centers on the resurrection. 58 verses, very exciting passage, full of uh, really fundamental truths for us, for the believer to stand on, to be very secure in. These are the passages that people want to hear, a number of them, when a loved one passes or when they are themselves in uh, some serious health straits. It reminds us of the victory that was found in the resurrection and uh, how that transfers and the ripple effect of that resurrection uh, to us and all that the Lord had intended through that resurrection for us to benefit. And so, uh, it's going to take us a while to get through that. I'm sure that's uh, these things. I'm sure that's no surprise to you. But we've broken this down it really to handholds so that you can know and you can even mark them in your Bible. And some Bibles are, are divided in some ways this way. But uh, the first, first section is the section we're on now, verses 1 through 11. That's the resurrection reality. That's the reality of the good news uh, that the tomb is empty and, and uh, a number of those things that are foundational that Paul wants to make sure that are clear in the message and presentation of the gospel. Then really in verses 12 through 20, we see the resurrection hope, a deliverance of our sin. And that is our hope, isn't it? And without that uh, resurrection, we are of all men uh, most to be pitied. And, and we see in verses 21 through 28, resurrection authority over death. The thing that everybody fears, the thing everybody desires. Well, I don't say everybody. If you're a believer and you understand uh, death and that transition that occurs from the shadow to the reality, you're, you're, it's not a fear. Really, I think the fear is that it'll hurt or that it'll be, it'll be over an extended period of time. But resurrection authority over death. And then we see verses 29 through 34, a resurrection motivation to live and to witness and to endure. What the resurrection translates into as it, as it results in our actual action. And then verses 35 through 49, a resurrection transformation of our fleshly body. And Paul really defines what that looks like and the different kinds of flesh. And it's a, it's a remarkable passage that clarifies a number of things. And then verses 50 through 58 is the last section the last handhold, if you will, that's resurrection triumph. That's our final victory. And so that's really how we're going to work our way through the passage, how I've kind of structured it in my own thought process so I can work through these things. I think this is, in some respects, give or take, how Paul has structured it. And so that's how you go, as you go about studying the Word of God, you can see how the writer many times has put the passage together, and you can pick those things apart. You don't have to manufacture some kind of outline that 
forces the Bible into some kind of mold that it doesn't really take on easily. You can just follow the, the passage and the thoughts of the, of the author. That's what we're going to do. We started last week with uh, Paul's uh, opening comments where he mentions the impact of the gospel on the church in Corinth. It's the passage I just read. Look at verse 1, if you would. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand. Verse 2, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so as we started that passage, we see Paul, really Paul saying, I'm currently telling you what the gospel is. So he makes, he's going to make it clear he's giving them the actual gospel. And it appears because he's doing that, that some uh, of the Corinthians were far from knowing or understanding and appreciating the gospel. There's some other things we'll talk about here in a minute that perhaps uh, where they were lacking. But it wasn't because they had never heard it before, because Paul says, I preached it to you. So the gospel Paul's explaining to them He'd explained to them before, and when he did it, they had accepted the teaching, and the gospel created this reality where a believer is fixed in place, permanently established. And so we looked at all that, uh, those sections last time. It was a firm foundation on which they stood. It was also, though, the vehicle or the means of conveyance that God used to bring about the salvation of the individual. So Paul is speaking to born-again people who had obviously lost the passion for the gospel, or even the ability to appreciate it or communicate it. And that's not unlike perhaps some in the modern church today who may be born again, but have lost the ability to communicate it clearly or have never been taught how to communicate it clearly. And so we're communicating something that isn't the gospel, which doesn't result in salvation. And that is Paul's main concern and why I think he spends so much time clarifying what, uh, what has to be said, what needs to be conveyed in order for the hearing to occur in the hearts of the unredeemed so that the Holy Spirit can go to work as God draws that individual. And I, I didn't mention last week because we covered so many important things, which we'll do this week. But when Paul says, in verse 2, he says, by which also you are saved, it's from the Greek sozo, present passive indicative. We saw that last time. It just means uh, to rescue or to deliver from destruction or to bring about wholeness. It's a continuous action. That's the present tense. So, and the passive voice means that the person's being acted on by an outside force. That's not uh, surprising to us because the Holy Spirit goes to work on the individual, and so the gospel works on them, that, that, that conveyance of the gospel works on the individual to bring about the work of the Holy Spirit. So the idea here is that a believer is being saved. And I didn't clarify that. Somebody came up la uh, last week and said, you know, you didn't say that it's actually being saved. I and mean, it is true, that's exactly how it's translated. Uh, presently, conti continuously being saved. So the idea here then, as we saw last time, the gospel as the means Christ uses to bring about salvation. And there is this sense, and you know this because we've studied this before, but there is this sense in which salvation is once for all where your position is secure. Uh, very similar to Galatians 3.13, a passage you're very familiar with. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And there it's aorist active indicative. So in other words, in this, there's an act that occurred at the past, sometime in the past. It's a completed act. Christ redeemed us. You are redeemed. It's a secure actual factual position that you have and salvation certainly takes in that meaning jesus did this he became a curse for us uh, because uh, we were under a curse and so we are redeemed as christ has taken that curse for us so and there's another sense though in which is it is in practice that salvation is in practice and the idea here is that we do not exhaust here it is we don't exhaust the meaning of salvation by our experience when we first believe which is why I say that to you often, and when we have someone who desires to come into membership, part of their, uh, that process is to explain to us uh, what salvation is. 
And so that has to include certainly this past act where you were redeemed, but it has a present reality in your life. Uh, the actual um, transformation, as Jim talked about two weeks ago, that's going to occur after you come to faith that Christ is continually saving you. It's, so it's a past completed act, and, and then and there is this process of salvation continuing. So it's not a history lesson. And so you should see the continuing, you should be seeing then the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you know, taking control of your thoughts, taking control of your actions, those kinds of things sanctification does over time. And so when you explain your testimony to people, it certainly should include this gospel that we're going to give. It should include the past act where you received Christ as your Savior. You understood your lost state and the condition that had to be accomplished for that to be remedied. And then there's also this continuing process where the Lord is working in your life. And that works into your, your testimony as well. And so I think that's very important because people need to see, and your testimony, just as a side, your testimony is going to be very tarnished if all you say is, well, I went forward one time. But as people look at your life, they don't see a continual work of the Holy Spirit bringing you into subjection to what the scriptures say. And so I think there's that process there, that duality of salvation. It is being saved, not that you're working your salvation out somehow that if you do it right, it'll be for sure. The idea is that there's a process going on that the Lord continues as you've come to faith. So we didn't talk about that, so I think we have it summed up there well enough, and you understand. And, that, and Philippians 1.6, I think, sums up that second part that we talked about. It says, for I'm confident of this very thing, you know the rest of this, that he who began a good work in you will be what? Faithful to complete it or perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So there's this continuing action going on in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit in your life through the interaction of the Word. So the gospel comes to the church in Corinth through Paul's witness in the synagogue. And what was said by Paul in the presentation then was of utmost importance. And we're going to see uh, then further into this passage how important that really was. So because uh, what was said gave a hearing to the true gospel and gave the Holy Spirit an opportunity to go to work in the hearts of the unredeemed to bring about a confession of important facts that we saw. Now, last time we looked at, just briefly, we won't do it again, Romans 10, Paul says much the same thing. It just describes this process of the gospel. The gospel is a vehicle through which the Holy Spirit goes to work. It comes by hearing a message. A message must be given. It's an essential element in evangelism. The truth must be communicated, and the facts have to be clear. And it, I think it's very important that we're even going through this now, because in just a couple of hours, we're going to be doing that on the, on the main street in Rustburg. Uh, many of us are going to be giving out the gospel. Make sure the facts are clear. If someone is saved, if someone calls on the name of the Lord, if someone believes and confesses, listen, beloved, it'll be as a result of hearing the clear message of the gospel. They may do something else if the message isn't clear, but it won't, be, it won't result in salvation. It'll result in a false security. We're going to see that in just a minute. So, Romans 10, 17 makes it abundantly clear that uh, faith comes by hearing and what? Hearing by the word of Christ. And so it's not even nebulous. It's very clear. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And then Paul defines what that gospel is very clearly and boils it right down to the bare facts that must be communicated for people to hear and have a hearing and for the Holy Spirit to go to work. So I think this is likely Paul's point, the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15. He's actively giving them the gospel because even though he had preached it to them previously, even though they had received it when it was given to them, even though they had found it in it a place to be firmly fixed, they didn't have the gospel correct, and they were giving it out 
and when they were giving it out and they were not evaluating and valuing it correctly, nor passionately and nor passionately pursuing the ministry of the gospel. And so all these things are in place and we see God wants the church to be healthy. Paul's addressing this uh, problem inside the Corinthian church. I think it continues to be a problem in the modern church and so it's very relevant for us today. So salvation can come to those who hear the word about Christ and respond in faith or to say it like it says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. That's right. So the gospel comes. It acts on an individual. It creates substance in the confession. So there has to be some kind of substance. Confessing Jesus with your mouth as Lord and believing in your heart, God raised him from the dead. It's not just believing in believing, okay, or believing in faith or whatever. It has to be believing in substance. And so it creates a substance in the confession. There's specific information that is conveyed by the gospel that Paul preached that must be confessed or, and that word means, to say the same thing, right? We saw last time. So we have to say the same thing in the confession that God says about Jesus. We have to say the same thing then that Jesus says about himself. We have to say the same thing that the scriptures say about Jesus. And that is that Jesus has all authority. That's what it means. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus has all authority. That's what God says about him. That's what Jesus says about himself. And that's what the other scriptures say about Jesus. We have to confess that or say the same thing that those sources say. But we can't do any of that, of course, and we want to keep this in mind unless the Holy Spirit is at work because a dead person can't confess anything. So the Holy Spirit has to go to work, but the gospel contains a substance that has to be there. So the Holy Spirit goes to work, but the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to go to work and the opportunity to confess, according to Paul, comes through the gospel. We just saw three sources that clearly say that. So it's not even in any question. So, Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So why did the Holy Spirit lead Paul to isolate this? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, because this, and we saw this last time, the physical bodily resurrection from the dead demonstrates that Jesus was who he said he was and did all that he said he came to do. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. It was the authentication and the verification of the ministry of Jesus. That's why it's isolated. And the scriptures tell us this so clearly. You're doing more than just believing an isolated historical event. Your heart will avow all that the resurrection is intended to avow. And you believe in your heart the verification of all Jesus came to be and to do. So salvation comes through the vehicle of the gospel. The Holy Spirit goes to work so that that person can believe from their innermost being that God has raised Jesus from the dead, which verifies everything that Jesus said about himself. And a person must confess then that Jesus has all authority over their life and they willingly submit to that authority. That is the substance of the gospel. Now, salvation can come to those who hear the word about Christ and believe and confess. Salvation can come to those who hear the word about Christ and call on his name, to use another passage we're going to see in a minute. Salvation can come if someone does those things. But here's the important part, okay? The knowledge comes before faith or believing or confessing. Knowledge comes before calling on the name of the Lord. And that's that bridge, if you will, to false profession. There's a knowledge without the heart confession. And we're going to see that in just a second. Obviously, then, our job in evangelism is the same as Paul's was back in Corinth and over in Rome, and that's to present the message, not manipulate people, not somehow pull on the heartstrings and hope that they'll respond somehow in emotion. That's not it, 
Okay, now there is emotion connected because when you feel sorry for your sin, you can get emotional about it. You're sorry for your wasted life. Paul says, what did you do before salvation for which you're not ashamed? And all of us can say nothing. And some of us can say, including me, I've done a bunch of stuff after salvation of which I'm ashamed, except Jesus took the shame, didn't he? And forgave all my sin. So the idea here is this. Our job of evangelism is the same as Paul's. We don't come up with our own message like the Corinthians were obviously doing or forgetting the most important facts in our testimony and forgetting how important the simple gospel message was, but just to present the message so that people have the appropriate hearing. And on that hearing, according to the first part of the verse, faith can act. And that's how that works, see? You're not responsible for their response. You're only responsible for your communication. And their response is going to rely on the Holy Spirit and God's sovereignty in the life of that individual, drawing them to salvation. But your job is to give out this message. So, present the message so people can have the appropriate hearing, and on that hearing, faith can act. Now, the power of the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, is constantly bearing fruit. It's of primary importance. We saw that over and over again. And so it does work. We're to deliver it clearly. It's available to the entire world. And that full message is being delivered by faithful missionaries all over the place. So, and no matter where it's given, it can be understood. And its impact cannot be overstated. So these things are very, very important. Now, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:2, this has been the experience of the Corinthians. They were saints, according to chapter 1. And then Paul gives this condition in this last part of verse 2. And this is where we're going to spend our time today. He says this. If you confess with your mouth, then that's not what we're supposed to be. Let's go to the next one. If you hold fast the word which I pre preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And this is the qualifying statement that we are going to start with this week and kind of work our way through and support. Now that word hold fast, kata kete, used as a sailing term uh, to check a ship's headway or guide a ship on the right course. And the idea is that uh, the life then of the individual who has heard the gospel continues, here it is, to be guided by the gospel. That's the continued proof of salvation. It's not something that you personally do. It is something that is manifest in your life and the lives of those who truly believe. See, before you came to faith, you didn't desire the gospel, nor did you desire to follow God's law, nor could you have done it, even if you would have desired it. But when you're changed, there is a new desire to follow what Christ says given to you in the new life that's been put in you. So you desire to follow, and you may not do it perfectly, and I certainly don't, but you desire to do it perfectly, and you desire to do it better, and the Holy Spirit's working then in your volition to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly to produce that kind of fruit. So the idea here is this, that hold fast is this continuing proof of salvation. It's present, active, indicative. So a continuous habitual action the believer is involved with of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It is the mood of reality. So inside that marvelous tension of the sovereignty of God and salvation, we have this interaction of man's volition, which on this side of eternity can be very difficult to pin down to our satisfaction. We've been, we have this warning from Paul, and really it just sums up what the scriptures teach us, and that is that if people profess to believe the gospel but have not given and are not giving due consideration to what that implies and what it demands, they don't really trust Christ. To put it a different way, if they're not holding fast the gospel, they weren't saved to begin with. That's the understanding, okay? 
And this is a common theme in the Word of God. And we're going to see it and take a moment to examine that. And I'd like you to turn to John chapter 8. Will you do that? John 8, and depending on the time, we may not make it back to Romans or to 1 Corinthians 15 too. So just, we're going to be in the Gospels a few, in a few places and in some of the epistles. John chapter 8, verse 28. Very common theme, a very common warning given that appeals to the volition of men. There's some things going on that will be demonstrated by the volitional effort of the person who has heard the gospel. So, look at John 8, 28, and we'll read through verse 31. And here Jesus is teaching. He's teaching the Jews about why he came, and he's teaching the Jews about the Father, and they don't understand, and they say they don't know where he's from, and then Jesus says these words. Now listen to them. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, see where I am, then you will know that I am he. In other words, he's speaking of his death and of his resurrection, which will prove everything he said before. That's implied there, okay? So when you lift him up, in other words, when you crucify him, that's what he's referring to, and he's going to go to the grave and he's going to rise, it's going to verify everything that I just got through saying. So they're unclear about all of that, but you'll know better when I rise, okay? Now, they're going to know something else about him too, and this is it. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me, verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So then Jesus was saying, verse 31, to those Jews who had believed him, here it is, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So there is this verification of a continuing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual over time that verifies what occurred back then. And so what's implied there then is the belief could have been false or the belief could be true. And what will happen is there'll be fruit that's born throughout the course of the life that will verify what's occurred. So that's the same, really, that really is the same thought that Paul is conveying that Jesus conveys first. It isn't enough that you believe some part about me. That's what he's saying to his disciples here. That I'm a miracle worker or that I'm a teacher or whatever. And then you're not really sure, you know, where I came from. And you got all these questions in your mind. It isn't enough that you believe some part about me. Jesus says, you have to continue to believe everything that I say about myself. That's what it means to continue in his word. And the idea here, just obviously in Corinth, uh, there are people who believe that Jesus was the Son of God. There are people who believe that he died on the cross. There are people who believe that the grave is empty. But they don't have any saving faith because they have not embraced from the deepest part of them all that the resurrection means. That's what it means to confess through their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Everything he said about himself and all that implies is verified by this resurrection. Now, there's another very important, uh, there's another very important illustration here in James 2.19. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to have you turn to another passage here in a minute. I'll put it on the screen. It's pretty direct and to the point, again, saying the same thing that... Paul said, saying the same thing that Jesus said before Paul, here's what James says, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. And so uh, this is illustrated really well, James 2, it indicates, indicates then that there's a superficial kind of faith, you can see that in your notes if you're a note taker, a superficial kind of belief, an intellectual acquiescence, in other words, the knowledge came so that the gospel communicates that knowledge that we're supposed to communicate, so the knowledge comes there's an intellectual acquiescence, if you will, that lacks the obedience to everything else Jesus said about himself. So it doesn't have the continuing fruit. That's what Paul said. That's what Jesus said. If you abide in my word, right? And Paul said a number of places that very same thing or words just like them. 
So there's this intellectual acquiescence, if you will, that lacks the obedience to everything Jesus said about himself. The same idea as in John 8, continuing in the Word. Instead, this belief is dead, according to James 2.26. It's a shallow, understand-the-facts kind of belief that doesn't save. Now, let's look closely at this in some detail. James says this, you believe that God is one. Now, that is a reference to the Shema. That's the word for to hear. That's something the Jews would uh, say out loud. They would quote on the way to uh, the feast days. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 is where we find that. It says this. It's a number of places where we find it, but here's one of them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Really the Jewish confession of faith, if you will along with Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, which is binding God's law on your hand and forehead and being careful to teach your children. All these passages we've gone through as we've gone through uh, the family teaching, always at all times doing those things. But James is referring to Deuteronomy 6, 4, which is another way of saying the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. So the word one is the Hebrew word for unity, and it's really a clear and concise statement of monotheism. So uh, the truth that Yahweh was the one true God. So James 2.19, then just drawing on that obvious part of Jewish culture, says this. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. So in other words, he simply says, if you believe that Yahweh is the true God, that's good. The demons believe that and they shudder. Demons are orthodox. They certainly know that God exists. They know that Christ came. They, they know much more about all of that than people do. James is just comparing people who believe, people who would quote the Shema, if you will, and he says that that kind of faith is a dead faith. It's illustrated as knowledge common to a demon. It's the same kind of faith that demons have. So what kind of belief can be dead? What kind of belief can be what demons believe? What kind of belief can be the kind of belief that doesn't continue in the word uh, or hold fast to what I told you or how, uh, the other things that we just got through saying? Well, here, here's some of them. We'll just uh, make some connections here. You can fill these in if you'd like in your, in your notes. The kind of belief can be demon faith, can be dead faith, can be not holding fast, can be not um, abiding in my word, that kind of thing. Well, demon faith uh, can have the right theology. You think they're foggy on who God is? Absolutely not. They know God's nature better than living humans do. That's for sure. They've been around God and his nature since they were created a long time before humans were created. Demons are monotheists. They know there's only one God in three persons. They're not foggy on whether Allah is really God and all that. Okay, no, no questions there. They know who the true God is. They're not foggy on any of that, okay? According to Leviticus 17.7, Deuteronomy 32.17, Psalm 106.37, demons have been impersonating all the other false gods all the way up until now. So not only do they know who the true God is, they're good at impersonating false gods to deceive people. Demons are more intelligent than humans. Uh, they've been around longer than humans have. Uh, demons were around before the creation of the world when God made them. And because of that, they've seen more of God's work than all the men who've ever lived combined. They've been, they have supernatural knowledge of the spirit world. They have a supernatural knowledge of the eternal realm. They have more than a superficial grasp of theology. Demons have seen the saving power of Christ. They have seen Jesus's miracles. They know what Jesus can do. There's no question in their mind that he is able to do all that he says he's able to do. You understand? That's still not saving faith, is it? Understanding that knowledge doesn't produce salvation. They were here on the earth when he was here. They know that he rose from the dead. Some of them were in chains when he conquered death and he went down into the pit to show them he was alive. 
And because of that, demons are afraid of judgment. Did you know it's possible to be afraid of judgment and not be saved? Did you know that? In fact, most humans are afraid of some kind of judgment. In fact, if there's any natural catastrophe anywhere around the world, what's the first question most people ask? Is this God judging us? There's always something in their mind that thinks that maybe there's some you know, quid pro quo going on here. That you know, You've stacked up a whole bunch of stuff and now God's taken a little back. So the idea here is that demons are afraid of judgment and people can be too. James 2.19 says that they tremble. When Satan was cast out of heaven halfway through, he's going to be cast out of heaven halfway through the tribulation, the book of Revelation says that he's furious. And what's the rest of it? Because he knows his time is short. So when he sees that thing happen, when he gets kicked out of heaven and all the, uh, all the unholy demons, all the unholy angels, the demons get kicked out of heaven, they know that's a very short time. So they're furious. The demon on earth during Jesus' time begged him not to cast them into the pit. Have you already come to cast us into the pit? They know the timeline. They've got an idea about what's supposed to occur. They knew Jesus was a little early. You're not coming to cast us in the pit already, are you? Demons know all about men. They understand men are sinful. You think they, do you think they're foggy on whether or not you really have any sin in your life? They've been watching you from the start. They're the ones who accuse constantly you before the throne. Oh, he says, Parker says he's a believer, but nobody knows what he does when nobody can see. He's not really a believer. He's not really yours. And what does Christ say? Yes, he is. He's trusted in my blood, shed on the cross to pay for his sins. But they, they understand men are sinful. They even want to get out of their punishment. And we know that because they, they have to be bound to restrain them. And, and Satan has to be chained with a lock and key to keep him restrained. They want to get out of punishment. Demons know about heaven. Many of them go to and from heaven on a regular basis, don't they? They know all about hell. Some of them are bound there until the tribulation time. Demon belief understands religious experiences. They've seen the true transformation of millions of people as a result of saving faith. Delivered from the power and the penalty of sin. They understand that. They oppose that with every part of their being and do their best to interrupt the message, which you'll see today when you're on the main street in Rustburg as you try to minister the gospel to people and all the interruptions that are going to occur and everything that will happen that interrupt that, that hearing of the gospel. See, They've been in the church more than 2,000 years disguised as false teachers. They know all about religious experiences. Okay, They've served on boards. They teach Sunday schools you know, through people. They do all of that. So, You've seen these people mentioned in the book of James who have demon faith. They could quote the Shema. They have the understanding of theology. They know who Jesus is, what he did. Uh, they fear judgment. Demons believe, demon belief understands all those things. Dead faith can know these things. Demons could sign most of the creeds of Christendom with no hesitation. They would agree with all of those things, see. So what's Jesus saying? What's Paul saying? What's James saying? In essence, they're all saying exactly the same thing, that there are many people with knowledge that are not saved. Salvation continues its work. It's not an isolated historical event. Remember Hebrews 5 and 6? There, if I've answered one question from Hebrews 5 and 6, I've asked, answered hundreds. It is a, a difficult book to absorb, to understand the context and the groups of people who are being spoken to. And Hebrews is a constant source of questions for people. And, and here's the thing, Hebrews 5 and 6, there are people who believe what's true, that are not saved. They even witness, here's the thing, they witnessed Jesus producing food from nothing and they even ate it with the crowd and they weren't saved. There are people who fear the coming judgment, but like the people in Revelation 9, instead of repenting, 
They just continue in their sin. Even though they fear judgment, they still continue in their sin. There are people who feel guilt, like Felix and Drusilla from Acts 24. And they don't want to hear Paul anymore, and they send him away. They don't want to talk about that. There are people who feel sorrow, like in 2 Corinthians 7.10. But it's a worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. They, they're sorry for what they've done, but it's not leading to repentance. There are multiplied millions of devout people who know what they need to know and keep the rules, but will never enter the kingdom. See, Look, if you would, to John 1. Turn over to John 1. And Jim read this last week. But catch what it says about this. Again, just addressing the same types of issues. I just want this just really firm in your mind. Because it's a warning to the church. It's a warning to the world. It's important to take stock, uh, to evaluate where you are. Particularly if you're a second or third generation Christian. This, these are important things to wrestle with. You need to come to grips with this, as I do. Um, here's, what, uh, here's what John says, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And then this beautiful balance, then, of the sovereignty of God, there are those who reject, there are those who receive, and there are those who believe, but, fall, but both fall under, verse 13, who were born, catch this, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's this volitional side, see, he came to his own, and his own did what? They willfully rejected. Now, that, the Corinthians didn't do that, right? They received. That's what we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. They received the message. But Jesus came to his own. They did not receive him. And certainly, verse 11 is the case for Israel, right? I mean, they did not receive him. It's not that Israel was indifferent to God, right? They cared a lot about God. They pursued God. They had a zeal for God, if you will, um, they had a keenness for the scriptures, but not according to faith. See, they sought God, but in the wrong way. They had a zeal for God, but not according to righteousness. But when it comes right down to it, as disbelief is explained for us from the scriptures, it really comes down to one thing that really applies to everyone. What is it? They love their sins so much that they're not willing to accept the gospel, which requires that they confess it, repent it, and turn from it. And when it comes right down to it, you bowl everything away, whatever the volitional response is, it comes right down to a motivation of they want to hold on to their sin. And I think that is as clear as anything that Scripture will teach. John 3 explains it very clearly. Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. He's a Jewish leader. And so uh, Jesus explains the gospel to him, how it must be received. And, and so look, flip over, if you would, to John 3, 16. I'd like you to look in your own copy. It allows you to make some notes in the margin that as the Holy Spirit impresses on you some very important things, you may use this passage to witness to people, and these things can help you. But it, verse 3 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And where is the guilt then? Where, where does the guilt lie? It lies on the one who disbelieves, the one who will not receive, as we saw in John 1. He's been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's confessing Jesus is Lord. What's his name? Jesus, he's he has authority over all things, and you haven't believed. You haven't confessed that. 
or will not confess it or rejected it or turned away from holding fast the truth or however you want to describe it, it ends up in the same place, see? He's been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19, this is the judgment. And here's where it boils right down to, you know, if, you've, if you haven't received it, if you didn't believe it, if you rejected it, if you won't hold fast the word, whatever it is, okay? Light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Here's the reason. For their deeds were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So we come right down to why do men disbelieve? Why, do your, why does your family, my brother, why does my sister? These are the, I mean, just make it real. These are the, this is the reason it comes right down to it. As scripture says, why do men disbelieve? Because they love their sin. They don't want to come and have it exposed. It's Jesus' words here. They avoid or reject the gospel because it shines a bright light on the conviction on sin. And those who don't want their sin exposed and those who are not willing to turn from their sin, they're not going to heed the message of the gospel. So there's this volitional response and they will not hear. And that really connects us to Jesus' words in Luke 5, 31. Jesus answers and says to them, again, a great illustration of the same thing. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As long as people think that they're okay, and this can be the way that they're expressing this, I don't want to turn from my sin, I don't want to confess my sin, I don't want to come into the light that my deeds be revealed. I'm not going to hold fast the word. I hear the gospel. I understand the message of the gospel. I understand all that Jesus is. I understand the knowledge of things that have to be confessed, but I'm not going to do it because I'm okay. See? As long as people think that they're not sick in sin, as long as people who are unwilling to regard themselves like the gospel describes them so they won't confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and all the derivatives of that, which is that I'm a sinner, I'm worthy of judgment, I'm under a curse, all the other things that are true about individuals, they won't confess that, see, because they think they're okay, they're not sick in sin, they don't regard themselves like the gospel describes them, then salvation cannot come, see. For everyone, it's really an issue of ignorant unbelief because of a love of sin, see. And that's not a new issue. Isaiah 30, verse 9, as the Lord describes Israel, he says this, For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, those who speak for God, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. In other words, we don't want to feel badly. Help us feel good about ourselves. Don't say the things that the Lord says to say. Don't reiterate to us the things God's already said. We don't want to hear any of that. Why? Because I... Either I'm okay and I'm not sinful or I don't want my deeds to be revealed and I'm tired of feeling guilty. See. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And that attitude prevails right up until today. And not just with Israel. See. People want to hear lies. They want to hear nice things. They want to be pacified. They don't want to be reminded of their sins, see? They don't want to be embarrassed about what they allow in their lives. They don't want to think about what they should be doing because men love darkness rather than light, like Drusilla and, and, uh, and Felix and all those. I don't want to hear about this. I'm tired of, I don't want to be guilty anymore. One of my family members told me a number of years ago, I, I don't want you to talk about the gospel and I'm not going to go to church because I'm tired of feeling guilty. You know, my response is, you know what? You don't, Jesus took the guilt, see? He took the shame. You can rejoice that you no longer bear it. They didn't want to hear it. 
They don't want to be reminded what they should be doing. Men love darkness rather than light. They don't want to confess Jesus as Lord, believe in their heart, God raised him from the dead. They won't hold fast the words because they have to admit too much. And even though they know it, like James 2 says, they won't act on it. Same general thought, Proverbs 1.28. I know I'm giving you a few things, but I think it's important really to firm up this foundation. Proverbs 1.28 says this, They will call on me, as the Lord speaks about disobedient people, those who know him but won't obey him. They'll call on me, but I will not answer. They'll seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned my reproof. See, some think they have a relationship, but it isn't based on the gospel, see? And so they think they can call out to the Lord, but it isn't based on the gospel. The Lord says, I'm not going to hear it. They're going to seek me diligently, but they're not going to find me. They don't have a relationship with me in a saving relationship. They have an antagonistic relationship, and I'm their enemy. Matthew 10. Turn there if you would. Here's where we're going to spend a few minutes. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, 5. As you're turning there, Jesus is sending out his disciples ahead of him, and he gives them some specific instructions about how to proceed. And I want you to listen to what he says about their interaction, because this is, this, these are our experiences on a regular basis. If you're a regular witness of the gospel, you will have some of these responses come to you on a regular basis. Verse 5 says this. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. See where I am? Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter, into, enter any city of the Samaritans. Verse 6. But rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that's where you're going to start. Those lost people of Israel. Jews. Verse 7. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then verify your message. That's, we saw this already. Verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Verse 9. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey. In other words, don't take money in for doing, giving out this gospel. I'm sending you out. You're going to give out this gospel. You're doing what I say on a short-term itinerant trip. Make sure you verify the message by doing the things that the Spirit has empowered you to do to verify the message and the messenger. And, and just do what you're supposed to do, and you're going to come back. I'm here with you. All your needs are going to be provided for. So don't take a bag for your journey, verse 10, or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support, verse 11, and whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave the city. So find a good testimony somewhere. Stay at that house. As you enter the house, give it your greeting, verse 13. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. So there's some discernment going on here as these disciples go out. They're able to discern what's going on really in the house, what may it look like on the outside, but what really happens on the inside side. If it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Verse, verse 14, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Verse, eight, verse 15, truly I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Why? Because the gospel came and they heard the knowledge of the gospel and they, they saw the verification of the messenger and the message and they rejected the message. And we saw as we went through Romans, did we not, that there are levels of punishment in hell very clearly delineated for us depending on the exposure of the gospel. And so Jesus just confirms that for us. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 11. So just go forward one chapter, verse 20. Matthew 11, verse 20. And here in Matthew 11, record some of the response then to that ministry. 
you know, as he tells them to go out to the lost sheep, tells them not to fear, you know, they're going to be turned over to Jewish authorities. They're sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves, he tells them. He warns them they're going to be hated because of Jesus' name. They're going to go out, Matthew 11, and they're going to have some responses. Look at verse 20. He began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 22, nevertheless, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because the miracles didn't occur in Tyre and Sidon. There wasn't as much accountability there as, in, as there was in the, in the villages where he sent his disciples. And so there would be less There'd be a lesser of judgment, although still judgment, compared to uh, knowledge. Verse 22, nevertheless, I say to you, more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend into Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. In other words, as Sodom, as wicked as it was, would have had the miracles that had occurred because of the gospel and Jesus sending his disciples out, they would have repented. Verse 24, nevertheless, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Did they receive the correct gospel? Absolutely. Accompanied by the verification of the sign gifts, did they abide in the message? No. Did they hold fast to the message? No. They rejected the message. The majority rejected the message. Why? John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. That's the issue. As you boil it right on down, why do men disbelieve? We see it over and over again because they love their sin. They don't want to come to have it exposed. They, they avoid or reject the gospel because it shines a bright light on the conviction of sin. They don't want to be confronted about their sinfulness. They want to go on and indulge themselves in vice and evil as they always have, and they're going to hate the messenger of the gospel. That's what it comes right down to. And that really describes everyone who willfully won't believe. Remember Romans 1.32, as it addresses a world that turned away from the knowledge of God. And although it says they know the ordinance of God, so they understand what God expects. And that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They know the message of the truth, and they know the judgment of God. And maybe, like James 2 says, they have a pretty good idea of demon faith. They're pretty solid on orthodoxy. They understand that Jesus came. They understand the tomb's empty. They understand Jesus has power. All of that, see? And yet they'll keep on doing their sin without sorrow, without confession, without repentance. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very, the very cornerstone, verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because, catch this, they are what? Disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Unbelievers are disobedient. To use Paul's words, if you hold fast the words, if you truly are born again, which we see here, what? They aren't doing. They're disobedient to the word. They want to live their lives as they wish to. They don't want the law of God to impinge on their lives. And there is this fearful interaction of God's sovereignty and man's volition going on here. See, Speaking of the glorious appearing of Jesus at the close of the tribulation, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, we see how Paul characterizes the unbelieving again. He says this, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth 
and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Verse 9, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all the power and signs and false wonders, talking about the Antichrist and how the Lord's going to slay him, just kind of summing up some of the things we looked at in depth as we looked at Revelation and Daniel. Verse 10, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why did they perish? Because they, mark this, did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, verse 11, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. They wouldn't believe what was true. They rejected what's true. Why? Because they love their sin, because they don't want to shine the light of, of, uh, a bright light of the gospel on their sin. All those things we just got through talking about. And the obvious outworking of that is they don't hold fast to the truth. They don't continue in the word. All the things we just got through talking about. So for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged, who, mark this again, did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Let's see. Those that are willfully disbelieving are also willfully choosing to take pleasure in wickedness, and they would not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And you'll run into those people today. There are many people who believe what's true that aren't saved. There are many people who fear the coming judgment, but instead of repenting, continue in their sin. There are people who feel guilt and who feel sorrow, but it's a worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance, but leads to death. There are multiplied millions of devout people who know what they need to know and keep the rules, but will never enter into the kingdom. See, So what is needed then? You can have all those things, and that can be demon faith. So as we've seen numerous times, because I don't want to end on this note, I want to end on the other note. And as we've seen numerous times, it's only the desperate ones, the ones who understand that they're sick, the ones who know that they need forgiveness, illustrated by Romans 4, 5. He says this, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Not self-righteousness, believes in Jesus, classifies themselves as the ungodly, says about themselves what the scripture says about them, what God has said, what Jesus has said, what the scriptures say, his faith that God is who he says he is and has done what he said he did. The ones who desire to abandon their sin or turn from their sin, desire to come to God, say the same thing about Jesus that God says, that Jesus says, that the scripture says. That's how it is for everyone. See, Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. We just saw that just a second ago uh, in First uh, Peter, didn't we? I love that. He simply points out that it was clear from back in Isaiah's time that it has always been God's plan to save all who believe on Jesus. Isaiah 28, 16 makes the general reference to he who believes in it will not be disturbed. Paul lets us know that ev that includes everyone. They won't be disappointed. A compound word, according to shame. Whoever, it's open to all, whoever believes in Jesus, as Paul has defined it, will never be brought to shame, never be disappointed in the outcome. It always brings about salvation. Simply, it always brings about the work God intended for it to bring about. And just anecdotal evidence, right? I've never known anyone who's confessed and believed who's got to the end and then really disappointed with what happened. Never. I don't think you could probably point out anyone either. Nobody's been disappointed with a result who were truly saved. God's salvation is a proven product. And perhaps you've experienced that in your own life. You could affirm that in your own heart right now and give him praise. Paul doesn't have any fear that the gospel won't work its power on whoever believes. And then the continuing result will be that you abide in the word. My word abides in you. You hold fast to the things that I, that I have given you. And he's not the only one. All who put their trust in him are confident. Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's not just belief in belief, is it? Confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Paul can confidently say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Timothy 1.12, No matter what I go through, no matter how much I suffer, for the ministry I discharge, I won't be disappointed. Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. See? So true salvation comes and true salvation endures. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. With absolutely clear conscience, Paul says, I can confidently say whoever places their trust in God for their salvation, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever believes in Jesus, whoever confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart, whoever holds fast to the words of the gospel, which is just the outward indication that a change has occurred. Ephesians 3, 6 and 7, Paul speaks of this unique ministry given to him by the Lord. And, and, uh, and this is what he's referring to in 1 Corinthians 15, 2. He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises of Christ. How'd that happen? Mark this. Through the gospel, a clear hearing of the gospel, which allowed the Holy Spirit to go to work, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Romans 10, 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Why? For the same Lord is Lord of all. It's inclusive. It just affirms a few things we've been learning. If you call on the name of the Lord, if you confess him as Lord, he's the same Lord. He's sovereign over all. He's the Lord of everyone. Everyone. And who is Paul referring to as Lord? Jesus. And what's he like? He's abounding in riches. Both English words are one Greek word. Pluteo. He's overflowing with whatever is needed for salvation, richly supplied, if you will, affluent in resources so that he can give blessings of salvation to all who call on him. See, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul uses the same type of words. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yes, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He's rich enough to provide all that anyone may need. He is equally rich and equally willing to provide for all who believe and confess. He is equally Lord of all. No difference for the Jew, no difference for the Gentile. And the only limitation is that it's only for all those who what? Call on him. And the word call, epikaleomi, to call for oneself. It's also used to denote calling oneself by a surname. So you're calling yourself by a certain name. So to then refer to then for all who name that name as their own. See? The idea here is expressing faith toward God. He's already defined that so carefully in verses 9 and 10. And we see in the scriptures a lot of places where God calls men. And here we see in context men calling on God. See? And this title, this is the other side of the work of the Spirit. God, in present time for us, calls men, and man, in response, calls on God. See, And what has to occur for that to occur? The gospel has to be clear. It has to be presented in such a way that people can have the hearing. See, It's calling for salvation. It's calling for forgiveness. It's calling for mercy, for grace. It contains those marvelous elements we looked at from Romans 8, 10, 9, and 10. The belief in the resurrection and the confession that Jesus is Lord. And the Holy Spirit goes to work through the gospel. 
and whoever can do this, and all who call, and they are the keys to understanding these two verses, and they're also the key to understanding the ignorance of national Israel. They were ignorant of the extent of salvation, and they rejected Christ and the message of the gospel. They disbelieved. They didn't hold fast. They didn't hold forth the word. Romans 10, 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's the last part of your notes. Paul starts with the word for again and continues to carry on the proof. It's calling, it's a calling from a sense of need. It's calling from a sense of inadequacy. It's calling from a sense of assurance that the Lord can be relied on. See? It's calling from those things. That's the motivation of the call, see? Those who call on the Lord that way are saved. Those who call on the Lord that way will hold fast the word. Those who call on the Lord that way will hold the truth that I've given you. See, Future tense to save or to heal or to make whole. That's salvation in its final state, a complete state. Psalm 99.6, a marvelous passage. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord. He answered them. Those in good company who, like these guys, recognized God's position, their inadequacy for the task, it refers to worshiping the Lord for his glory and for his wonder and for his praise and for his majesty. You call on him for his virtue, his sufficiency, his power, etc. See, you're saying the same thing about Christ that the Word says about Christ, that he said about himself, that God says about him, see. And realizing that it all comes to a result, uh, all comes as a result of his sovereign power. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, it's worshiping the true God in truth and with a true heart, calling on the name. So it's calling from a sense of need, from a sense of inadequacy, from a sense of assurance that the Lord can be relied on. It's calling on the name, it's calling on all that he is, all that he's done, all that he claims to be. The name of the Lord means all that he is, see? All that he is, in the essence, that's the essence of his name, see. When the gospel comes, it's an act of faith, trusting what the scripture has revealed about him, see. It implies that all that we've learned from Romans 10, 9, and 10, and what we see from Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 2, and all that it takes to be saved, the one who recognizes his deity, that's part of his name, see. The one who respects his authority, that's part of his name. The one who honors his majesty, that's all part of his name. The one who accepts his word, that's part of his name. The one who submits to his sovereignty, that's part of his name. The one who hopes in his mercy, because that's part of his name. The one who believes in his resurrection, because that's part of his name and how he's revealed himself in Christ. And the one who loves him as Lord and Savior, because that's part of his name. And they're holding fast the word, because that's the result of salvation, see? Then you get the picture. They'll be saved. It's as wide as whoever believes in him and whoever believes in God on God's terms has offered eternal deliverance from sin's penalty, guilt, and death, and hell. See. You bow your head with me. Let's close. We're out of time, and I just want to give you a chance to act on those things that we've talked about. So which side describes you? I, had to rest, I have to wrestle with this. You have to wrestle with this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, don't look around if you would. Just take just a second. I'll, seriously, it'll be two minutes and we'll be done. Paul says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you.
Does that mark your life? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Have you believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? Are you being conformed to his image? Are you holding fast that word, bearing fruit unto salvation? Like Paul says in Colossians 1.10, Are you walking in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God? He said that to Colossians, disciples like you. Is that true about you? Is that something that's in your mind a lot? Does that make it your way, way into your prayer language to the Lord? Lord, I want to walk in a manner worthy of you, even though if you were not born again, you wouldn't even want that, and you wouldn't be able to do it anyway. But is that in your prayer language? You want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? You can look back over the course of your life. You can see the Lord's work in your heart as it works its way out in your actions. You want to bear fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God? Is that true about you? Is that the side you're on? That side, as Paul addressed the Corinthians, many of them were there. They heard the gospel. They received it. They stand in it, and they're saved by it, and they're holding fast the word. Or is this side describe you? Unless you believed in vain. You've been in church most of your life. You've certainly lived most of you in a Western culture where you have heard the gospel over and over again. And perhaps you had some fruitless or vain act in the past. You believed in vain, aorist, active, indicative. Sometime in the past, you made some profession that really wasn't what the scripture says. You didn't believe on the true gospel. You, didn't, you weren't willing to confess your sin, see? And vain is that Greek adverb, ek, for no purpose. You believed for no purpose. You believed in vain. When the gospel came, did you really think you were just okay and you weren't really too concerned about it? You didn't really believe you were sick in sin. You were unwilling to regard yourself the way the gospel describes you. Did you really secretly love your sin and you didn't want to come and have it exposed and you didn't want to submit to Jesus as Lord? Listen, these are real issues. This plagues the church constantly. It has a number of folks who would represent this part. See? If that's the case... And you can look through the course of your life and you don't see this conforming to the image of Christ. You don't see this holding fast to the, to the gospel and having it work its work in you. You don't see this desire to continue in my word. See? Then this statement applies to you. People profess to believe the gospel but have not given and are not giving due consideration to what it implies and what it demands. They don't really trust Christ. And you can reconcile that right now where you sit. Perhaps this is the first time that light is turned on. You can confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. He is who he said he is. He came for the reason he said he came. He accomplished all that he said he came to do. He is in authority. You are willing to give up all authority and all the plans you had for you and all the way you, you directed your life and all the, the varnished outside that you've allowed other people to see but doesn't represent true Christianity, but you can conform because the church has no persecution and you're willing to do it as long as it doesn't cost you anything, see? You can confess all that right now. Don't be too prideful to hold on to a false confession that hasn't resulted in anything in your life. Because, beloved, someday you're going to wish for this day back where you can confess Jesus as Lord, where you can submit to him as with all authority that he deserves, understanding that the resurrection 
validates everything, even the coming judgment, which you will see if you've believed in vain. If you confessed him as Lord today, would you please take that card from the pew in front of you? Confess that there. Let us know that's what happened. Let us disciple you. It'd be our joy, overwhelming joy, to begin this journey with you, regardless of all that you may have experienced and know and all the knowledge you may have that James talks about. As a new believer, it's going to be a whole bunch of cool stuff that is going to go on in your life. You're going to see some fruit for the first time. The way you interact with people will change. The way you interact with your spouse and your children and people in general. Your motivation is going to change. Your priorities, the Holy Spirit will go to work on all of that. It'll be our joy to help you grow in your knowledge of Christ. Lord, thank you today for your word. Thank you for the clarity of it and how it makes um, these things that we have talked about so clear. We want to be sure that, even as Paul said, examine myself and be sure I'm in the faith. If Paul said that about himself, how much more, perhaps, should we be considering these things, particularly if we haven't seen the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in our life, whether by our desire to see him work or because temporarily walking in disobedience, he chastens us so that we'll produce fruit. Either way, we should be seeing it. And if we don't, Lord, let that be a warning. Help us to seek you. I beg you, as Paul said, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to minister later. Thank you for the fellowship it'll provide for us. Thank you for the chance that we will have to interact with the unsaved. I pray that you'll bring those to us that need to be saved, that need to have the word planted in their heart. And I pray that you'll help us bear fruit, great fruit. Some of them we won't know until we're in the kingdom. Lord, thank you as we did what Jesus said. We used uh, money, things that pass away, to invest for the kingdom, that we we might have friends later in eternity because we took the time and we took the effort and we took the resources uh, to make sure that they heard. I pray that you'll give us favor there. Thank you for the benefit of and the opportunity of participating in the Great Commission. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.